Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that slow walks through Dante's masterwork, comedy, and I want you to settle in to a nice comfy chair for one of the great undiscovered sinners of hell. We are about to come across someone in the 10th of the evil pouches, the malabolja, the pits of fraud, that giant eighth circle of hell, someone who is not always listed up with the greats like Francesca and like Ulysses and like Guido de Montefeltro and like Pierre de la Vigne, someone who is often overlooked and yet his space inside Inferno is giant. His soliloquy is large. He is often blipped over in this pit of the falsifiers for unclear reasons. Isn't it interesting that after 700 years, there's still a little bit of undiscovered country? I don't mean to say that this figure hasn't been commented on by scholars. Of course he has. But what I mean is that the amount of ink spilled on who we are about to meet is far less than spilled on Francesca, on Ferranata, and others who form the great pantheon of the damned. We're at Inferno Canto 30, lines 46 through 90, a longish passage, 46 through 90. It is on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can go there and read along and even drop a comment. You can ask for clarifications. You can see if I'm not exactly thinking straight about this. We've got a lot to cover, and I hope to do it in a rather logical way, but you know how I do. I kind of wander sometimes through the passages. So let's get started by reading this longish passage, Inferno, Canto 30, lines 46 through 90. I had my eyes fixed on those two rabid guys until they passed on from where we were. Then I turned around to look at the other born bad people. I saw one who'd been made into the shape of a lute. If only he'd been sliced off at the crotch right where the trunk of a guy is forked. The bloated dropsy had so distended his parts with all these badly digested humors that his face was not in proportion to his gut. He had to hold his lips open the way a feverish guy does, one who's so thirsty that he curls one lip down and the other inverted up. Oh, you guys who don't suffer any pains in this horrid world, I don't know why, he said to us. Look over here and pay attention to the sufferings of Master Adam. I had plenty of what I wished for when I was alive. Now, alas, I crave the triniest dribble of water. The rivulets that flow down the green hills in the Casantino on their way to the Arno make the channels cool and damp. They're set before my vision from now to eternity. 
and not without purpose because their image dehydrates me all the more because of the malady that melts the flesh off my face. The firm justice that pokes at me takes its rationale from the place where I sinned to put my sighing to flight more quickly. Romaina is up there where I falsified the coins that were imprinted with the image of John the Baptist. That's why I left my body burned up there. But if I could see the sad sack souls of Guido or Alessandro or of their brother, I wouldn't trade that sight for the Branda Springs. One of them is down here already. If these enraged shades running about sometimes come to speak the truth... But what good does it do me if my limbs are bound like this? If I were only free enough from taint and lightweight enough that I could move an inch in a hundred years, I would have already set out on that path to find him among these disgusting people. Even though this circle is 11 miles around and spreads out not less than half a mile across, I joined this sad family because of them. They convinced me to mint those florins so that each contained three carats of worthless crap. Wow, there is a whiny narcissist. If ever we have met a whiny narcissist in hell. Oh, Master Adam, good grief. No one could stand more than five seconds of you, and yet we are only in the first of two long passages that involve you. You are truly some of the major landscape of hell, often overlooked. Let's take this slowly, bit by bit. Let's work through it before we work through the implications. There are some wild inferences we can make from pieces of this speech. We'll talk about that after we get through the passage itself. Let's start at the top. At line 46 of Canto 30, it says, I had my eyes, this is the pilgrim, Dante speaking, my eyes fixed on those two rabid guys. Remember, Mira and Gianni Schicchi, who had come up, Gianni Schicchi had dragged off Capocchio. Our pilgrim is still caught watching them. And then he turned around to look at the other born bad people. This is the first place I want to stop. Malnati in the Florentine. We have come across this phrase before or a similar phrase to it in Inferno. And it presents a certain theological problem. And we went over this before, but I just want to explain it one more time. The problem with this phrase, malnati or bad born, the I translated it, born bad, bad born people. The problem with it is it raises the question of whether evil is ontological or ethical. If these people are born bad, then their sin is part of their ontology. What I mean by that is part of their being. It's part of their makeup. If they're born bad, that means that they came into evil as part of their essence. This stands in direct contrast to what Dante seems to want 
to say, which is that evil is actually not ontological, but ethical. Given that the church believes that the sin of corruption, that the corruption of Adam is passed on particularly from the male to the female during the sex act and during the, we would now say in the modern world, fertilization act, therefore sin, the nature of evil, is ontological. It has to be as far as church theology is concerned. Not so for Dante. Dante wants evil to be a choice. And since Dante wants evil to be a choice, it means that you can't be born bad. There's two ways to look then at this strange theology sitting here inside of Inferno. One is that Dante the poet is still working this out. This is where I come down. That the poet is still trying to figure out how to make evil ethical rather than ontological. Or how about this? How to make evil a choice rather than a part of your being. The poet, for me, is still working this out and is slipping occasionally into the ontological argument. The other way to look at this is that the pilgrim still believes in an ontological notion of evil, which will be fully corrected in Purgatorio. We will find out in Purgatorio that you are not bad-born, but that, in fact, evil comes upon you as a series of choices. And that will be spelled out clearly in the very dead middle of Purgatorio. And you could argue that the this is in the pilgrim's eyes, so the pilgrim is still thinking of evil in the traditional way the church does, or you could say, um, this is where I tend to come down, that the poet is still working this out and trying to figure it out. The pilgrim reply here is much more smarty pants and much more saves the contradiction that I think is borne out in the phrase based on the fact that Dante wants evil to be a choice. Okay, moving on. I saw one who'd been made into the shape of a lute. If only he'd been sliced off at the crotch right where the trunk of the guy is forked. So this guy looks like a lute if you take his legs off. What that means is he's got, as we've discovered, dropsy, and his belly is so distended. Think about what a lute looks like. It's got that big drum-like underside. The strings go down the straight uh, side of it with the frets and the neck. And then there's the strings going across the, like a guitar, across the large sounding part of the instrument. And that in a lute, particularly in a medieval context, is a large uh, half circle that, or it's not exactly a half circle, but you know what I mean. It's a large spherical half that is the back of that instrument. So this guy looks like a lute. We should note that a lute is a very highbrow instrument in Dante's day. It is not that this guy looks like some cheap recorder from elementary school. A lute is one of the very highbrow Tony instruments in medieval thought and in medieval musicology. Things written for the therabo, the coming therabo.
Maribeau of the Renaissance and the lute in the Middle Ages are highbrow pieces to say the least. This automatically gives us a clue about this figure coming. This figure is not low class the way perhaps Gianni Schicchi was. This figure is not necessarily a grifter in that same style. This is more highborn stuff, although his dropsy has so hideously deformed him. Let's talk about that. The passage goes on, the bloated drops he had so distended his parts with all these badly digested humors that his face was not in proportion to his gut. Again, his belly is so distended with dropsy. This is the first moment that we discover that in this medieval hospital of horrors, there are various kinds of falsifiers, as we hear from this figure coming up, Master Adam. He's a counterfeiter and that there are various diseases for the various types of falsifiers. There was clearly a leprosy for the alchemists. There was rabies for the false impersonators. And now there is dropsy for the counterfeiters. So we have various diseases that are being assigned to the various kinds of falsifiers in this pit. I should say just a little bit about dropsy in a medieval context. When they say dropsy, what they mean is grotesque swell. Usually, if you were to lance it, that releases a great deal of fluid. We might now identify much of what they called dropsy as edema. And it's thought that the metastatic cancers that people had, of course, invade their lymph nodes and thereby block them, giving you this terrible edema, which you may know from modern cancer treatments. This may be part of the medieval obsession with dropsy. Dropsy. The explanation for dropsy in the Middle Ages is that food is swallowed, it is cooked by the liver. Your liver is like a big oven. Cooking, <laughs> cooking the food, mine feels like it sometimes. Cooking the food inside of you, it then turns that cooked food into blood. So think about the liver as like an oven food processor. And then that blood is stored in the heart where it gets pumped out to the extremities. No concept of circular system. They wouldn't understand the slightest bit of a difference between a carotid and a jugular. Instead, when it says here that his parts are bloated with these badly digested humors, that's this notion that his liver is out of function. It's cooking the food improperly and it's bloating him up. Let's turn to Master Adam and his story. He starts out by calling out to the pilgrim and Virgil, oh, you guys who don't suffer any pains in this horrid world, and I don't know why. Uh, look over here and pay attention to the sufferings of Master Adam. We should note two things here about Master Adam. One is there's a bit of sarcasm in what he says. That phrase, and I don't know why, we should read it as a little bit dripping in sarcasm. Remember, Virgil has already spoken about leading a living human through hell. 
Clearly, Master Adam has overheard that conversation with Capocchio and the other alchemists. He's now pointing them out, and he seems, well, shall we say, irritated that they're not suffering, but he wants them to pay attention to his sufferings. Oh, he is just a full-on narcissist. Look over here at me. And notice how bad I am suffering. This figure, Master Adam, is a little hard to identify. He was tough for the early commentators to identify, and he remains a little bit tough to pin down. He was probably connected to Conti Guido of Romena because the Counts of Romena were caught in a counterfeiting ring in 1281. A Master Adam or Adam was most likely burned at the stake in 1281 for counterfeiting. A lot of the early commentators place his birth at various parts of central Italy. Most of that now is heavily doubted by scholars. He's a little bit opaque to get so much space, but we can certainly say he says of himself that he's a counterfeiter. We can certainly say he's suffering from dropsy, and we can certainly say that he himself says he was burned alive. So much of this story does seem to fit, even if some of the details the early commentators have may not exactly be right. We're going to come across one of those details in a minute. So the first thing we notice is that he wants his pains to take front and center stage. He wants his pains to be up front. And the first thing that they notice, what, what else would you expect from a guy in hell except that he's suffering? But okay, he wants his physical ailment to be front and center. Then he goes on in the wildest possible way. I had plenty of what I wished for when I was alive. And at first, that line is a little strange. What does he mean? I had plenty. What did you wish for? And then we figure it out. Now, alas, I crave the tiniest dribble of water. This man has been dehydrated by his edema, by his dropsy, and he is just absolutely mad with thirst in this pit, which pushes him back to remember his home, the rivulets that flow down the green hills in the Casentino up above Florence, a beautiful forested area, on their way down to the Arno, making the channels cool and damp. These are set before my vision from now to eternity. We, as Robert Hollander, the Dantista, points out, we get a rare brief respite from the terrors of hell by imagining these beautiful little streams flowing down these verdant very fertile hills, we get this little glimpse of a respite from hell's torments, as Hollander points out, while our respite is Master Adam's torment. He remembers all of this, and it drives him crazy, because he can remember growing up in a very (laughs) damp, cool place, the exact thing, he burning up with fever, really thirsty from dropsy, the very thing he wants. These are set before his vision for all eternity and not without purpose because their image dehydrates me all the more because of the malady that melts the flesh off my face, the firm justice that 
pokes at me, takes its rationale from the place where I sinned to put my sighing to flight more quickly. Notice the wild notion of contrapasso here. Contrapasso, remember to be punished for the sin in the same way that you sinned. In this case, the contrapasso is not about the sin. It's about where he lived. He lived in a verdant, watery place with lots of rivulets. So the very definition of contrapasso that was dropped on us not so many lines ago by Bertrand de Born here takes a twist. I think Tate knows exactly what he's doing. He's telling you, listen, contrapasso is not a one-on-one, A-to-A kind of experience. Here's a figure, Master Adam, who whose contrapasso is based on that beautiful area of central Italy where he's from, or at least where he lived part of his life, up there in Romena with all the beautiful streams coming down the hills. Now this poor guy is just dying for a drop of water. Notice how much time is spent here on his past, his torment. Notice how long he talks about his former life and about what's happening to him now. And notice that memory is as tormenting as the dropsy itself. In fact, memory pushes on the dropsy and makes it worse. That idea, the image dehydrates me all the more. There's a poetic resonance underneath that, that poetry makes the torment work. Images, imaged landscapes, remembered landscapes, images of the natural world. When you are in a completely unnatural place, it makes the torment worse. Imagine if you were lost in the southwest desert of the United States, somewhere in southern Utah, and you're from, I don't know, verdant, beautiful Montana or Vermont. And imagine that you're out lost in this place and you suddenly have this memory of Vermont forests and the green mountains. It would be doubly tormenting because the image, that which poetry traffics in, the image would be so juxtapositioned to your current moment. There clearly is a way that imagistic poetry can not only enhance beauty, but it can raise the torment of those caught outside of these nostalgic and beautiful images. Now we get his crime. After that long wind-up from Master Adam, he says, Romena is up there where I falsified the coins that were imprinted with the image of John the Baptist. Florentine coins had the image of John the Baptist on one side. And so he says, I falsified the image of John the Baptist. But by bringing up the word John the Baptist, he actually, I have to tell you, in the medieval Florentine, he says, with the image of the Baptist, I added John just for clarity's sake. By bringing up the Baptist or John the Baptist, we're bringing up water. What did John the Baptist do? He baptized people in the River Jordan, including Jesus, dunked them in water. Think 
about the watery nature of this pit. What happens in those opening two images of Thebes and Troy? People throw themselves into water. People find their dead sons next to water. We pass on down the pit and we find someone dying of thirst in the pit who is swollen with fluid, who remembers streams, and who brings up John the Baptist. Listen, he could also say, Romain is up there where I falsified the coins that were imprinted with the image of a lily because also Florence from Florence were imprinted with images of lilies. Instead, he uses the other side of the coin, the Baptist, which brings up watery imagery and he tells us, that's why I left my body burned up there. This is the typical punishment for counterfeiting in Dante's day. In 1281, as I've already told you, a stash of counterfeited Florence was found after a fire in the Borgo San Lorenzo, that section of Florence, the Borgo San Lorenzo. After a fire there, a stash of counterfeited Florence were found reputedly connected to and or owned by the Counts of Romaina. There is some historical basis that appears to be true enough that we can put our weight down on it, and Romaina was Conte Guido's castle and seat. In fact, the ruins are still there. So in three quick lines, Master Adam tells why he's in hell for counterfeiting. But notice how much time has been spent talking about how much he's suffering. His crime, the reason he's damned, seems unimportant to him. What seems really important <laughs> is that he's suffering and he lived in a really nice place. And now, man, do I wish I still lived in a really nice place, but he gets more disgusting than that. The final 15 lines of this passage are spent on his unbelievable hatred. Let's go through them. If I could see the sad sack souls of Guido or Alessandro or of their brother, there are actually four brothers involved in this Romena ring, but he mentions three. I wouldn't trade that site for the Branda Springs. This is how angry he is. Master Adam is suddenly caught talking about the kind of vengeance he wishes to inflict on others, some of whom are already in hell. This is a very interesting shift. We have had souls tear each other apart in the river sticks with Filippo Argenti, but it is rare that the damned wish further punishment on their fellow damned. Think of Ferranata and Cavalcante in that tomb. Ferranata doesn't even notice Cavalcante when he rises up and puts his head over the edge of the tomb in the heretics. Here, Master Adam is consumed with his utter hatred for these 
counts and their sons of Romena, who he claims talked him into counterfeiting. Notice he doesn't seem to think he has any agency here. It's just like Francesca. I didn't do anything. They, they, they made me do it. They forced me to be a counterfeiter. I didn't do anything at all. The Branda Springs, by the way, is an unclear reference. The early commentators all believe this is a spring in Siena on land owned by the Brandi family. But it seems weird that we would be talking about the Casentino and Romena, and then we would suddenly be talking about Siena. Recent excavations up in Romena have in fact found an almost dry spring, probably connected to the castle up there. And that may be what the Branda Springs refer to, or in the Florentine, the Fountain of Branda. He wouldn't trade, notice more water imagery, even a sight, even a look at that watering hole for a vision of these brothers who he claims sent him to hell. He goes on and says, one of them is down here already. That must be Guido because he is the only one dead in the year 1300. And if you remember, Dante's journey is taking place in the year 1300. All the other brothers die after the year 1300. So notice how careful the poet's being. One of them is down here already. If these enraged shades, that would be Mira and Gianni Schicchi, and we presume others, running about sometimes come to speak the truth. But what good does that do me if my limbs are bound like this? Another shade who basically is immobile. Remember, most souls in the circle of fraud move. They're whipped about like Jason, like the hypocrites. They move in some way like Ulysses, like Guido de Montefeltro, like the schismatics circling the pit and being hacked apart. In this pit, so many are immobile. They can't move. And in fact, this guy is so bloated that he is unable to move his legs. If I were only free enough from taint, he says, and lightweight enough that I could move an inch in a hundred years, I would have already set out on that path to find him among these disgusting people. This, this guy has got the most enmity of anyone we have encountered in hell, more so even than Filippo Argenti, because, he says, the pit that he's in is 11 miles around. 11 miles, an inch in a hundred years, Critics have figured out it would take him 700,000 years to get all the way around the circle at that rate. But hey, he's got eternity. So he could set out at an inch 100 years and in 700,000 years surely come across Guido and <laughs> maybe even some of the others. But notice also what's happened here. We have a ratio. Remember we were told that the last pit was 22 miles around, the pit of the schismatics? And now we find out that this pit is 11 miles around. Uh-oh, a ratio. What does that mean? Does that mean the pits are having? So here's the question. If the schismatics pit is 22 miles around, then is the pit of the false counselors above the schismatics, is that 44 miles around? 
or are the pits decreasing by 11 each time? <laughs> you can imagine that this has bedeviled many a scholar because with the difference between the ninth and the 10th pit is 22 miles around versus 11 miles around, which would make then the 8th pit 44 miles around, then 22, then 11, which would make the 7th pit 88 miles around. Now you're getting the notion of how big hell is. And think about this. Spreads out not less than half a mile across, Master Adam says. That means those bridges that we've been crossing in fraud are half a mile long. Do you realize how big those bridges are? Are you catching a glimpse of how gigantic hell is. We now have ratios. We have ways to figure out this landscape. Believe it or not, there has been much geometrical figuring out of the actual square miles that hell takes up. In any event, no matter the answer to the math, it's a big place, a giant place all the way across. And we finish with Master Adam saying, I joined this sad family because of them. It's not my fault. I didn't do anything. <laughs> Man, I tell you, the damned are made out of Teflon. They just don't want anything to stick to them, even when they're absolutely caught. You know, it's like catching your husband, your wife, your lover, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. It's like catching them in bed with someone else. And there they are in bed with someone else. And they say, Ma, I didn't do anything. They made me. They, they forced me. They seduced me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah they, you didn't do anything right. This is the way the damned are. They are trying so hard to be Teflon at all points. And this is what leads us all the way back to Francesca. When Francesca gives that beautiful speech, love caused me to love, forced me to love, made me read this book, love, love. And remember, it seemed murky at that point. What's going on here? Love. I mean, isn't that a prime Christian virtue? Now we've passed through enough of hell that if we go back up to Francesca in the circle of lust, we can see she's essentially doing this, just not as blatantly. She's trying to be Teflon and push away any culpability. His culpability will, instead of minting Florence with 24 carats of gold, as they were supposed to be, he just used 21 and 3 carats, as he says, of worthless crap. He watered down even the amount of gold in his counterfeit coins in order to pass them off cheaply, to create them more cheaply, and create a bunch of wealth. I mean, listen, this strikes at the heart of the new world economic order coming in Dante's day, currency. If currency is not worth anything or can be easily mimicked, we are all in a bunch of trouble. Let's go back and talk about some implications in this passage. I realize we've gone on and on here about Master Adam, but let's talk about some implications. One is his name, Adam. We can't think about Adam without thinking about Adam, the first human that God created in the Garden of Eden. This is not that Adam. We'll later meet that Adam. There's a couple things here that are interesting. One is his recollections of the Casentino. It's very 
idenic it sounds like the garden of eden the rivulets flowing down remember the garden of eden had four rivers in it this beautiful verdant place we're kind of being pushed to adam we're also being pushed to thinking about the second adam now i want to talk about that and then i want to come back to the first adam the second adam the new adam is jesus in Christian theology. He takes on Adam's sins and forgives the sins of the world. Why is this here and important? Because this figure, Master Adam, is shaped like a lute. And there was a common medieval image of Christ on the cross as a stringed instrument. Think about the cross. Think about Jesus hanging on the cross, and there is a common motif in poetry and in art of God playing the new Adam on this stringed instrument to sing the redemption of the world. That is an obscure reference, but it wouldn't be obscure to any medieval. And the new Adam, Jesus Christ, is not a counterfeit, but rather a solid gold version of the first Adam. Let's talk just a little bit more about the first Adam. We're down here in the 10th of the Malabolgia of the Evil Pouches of Fraud. We are getting way toward the bottom of hell, and we are coming toward the foundations of everything. Down here at the foundations of everything, Dante the poet is dropping a hint about Adam. This will become more important in the next episode of our podcast, but we are getting down to the roots, and this is coming down to the roots of the human problem. This master Adam exhibits some of the roots of the human condition. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but let's pull out one more obscure reference before we get there. Master Adam says the rivulets that flow down the hills in the Casentino on their way to the Arno, making the channels cool and damp. These are set for my vision from now to eternity. Remember that bit? Cool and damp. That is a Virgilian quote. It's a quote to Virgil's Eclogues, Eclogue 10, line 42. That cool and damp comes right out of that moment. And this brings us to an interesting point. You remember this canto began with Thebes and Troy, and I told you that the story told about Troy is out of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Why wasn't it out of Virgil? Virgil's standing right there, the great writer of the siege of Troy and the destruction of Troy. Why was the example pulled out of Ovid? And while we're at it, how long has it been since you've heard from Virgil? We're in the middle of Virgil's longest silence in comedy so far. Virgil hasn't said a word since Canto 20. 
9, line 101. He will be silent for 169 lines in this section we're in. There are some longer ones coming up, but it is so far the longest moment of Virgil's silence. All the references are to Ovid. Why is this? Why is Virgil being left out here or sidelined in the pit of the falsifiers? Is it because alchemy and impersonating identities and counterfeiting are particularly modern problems? And so Dante has sidelined the classical figure Virgil because these are not sins that Virgil would ever even consider in the Aeneid. Is that part of it? And so Dante drops a Virgilian reference here, cool and damp, just to remind us, hey, don't forget, Virgil's standing there, but he's not really a part of the action. If that's the case, if these are modern sins and the classical figure is pushed aside, then why so much Ovid? Why such an obsession with Ovid inside this pit, except Ovid is about metamorphoses, and this pit is about the metamorphosis of contagion that still doesn't fully give us a lead into Virgil's silence. 169 lines. It's a long time in a poem to forget a character or to have him stand to the side. I guess he's not forgotten. There's a Virgilian reference here, but it's a long time for Virgil to hold his tongue. And when he comes roaring back into the poem, trust me, he's going to come back in with a vengeance. That's ahead of us. Let's talk a little bit more about Master Adam. Why is Master Adam given so much time? And just to say, again, we're not done with him. The next episode of this podcast will also involve Master Adam. Why is he given so much time in comedy? I want to come back to something that I've said before. We are approaching the bottom of hell. We are approaching the foundation of everything. We're approaching the base. And if you think about Dante's conception of the universe, that is the Earth is at its center, and the planets and the sun are all swirling around the Earth, then the center of the Earth, where we're headed, is very much the center of everything. We're truly coming down to the point at which everything turns above us. I mean, seriously, the center point of the universe. Maybe that's part of why this atom figure is sitting here, the heart and the foundation of things. Another speculative notion of why Master Adam gets so much space in comedy, he does sum up the damned. He's evading responsibility. He's licking his wounds. He has a veneer of politeness over outright malevolence. Only here, unlike Pierre de la Vagne and, and Ulysses, the veneer is much thinner. If we go back up to Brunetto Latini, even Pope Nicholas III upside down in his hole, the veneer of politeness is thicker. 
It's very thinned out here. I mean, this guy wants to spend 700,000 years dragging himself an inch every hundred years, his drop seed self, an inch every hundred years, just to exact some kind of vengeance on one of the brothers of the counts of Romena who got him here for counterfeiting. Master Adam, in many ways, sums up the damned. His problems are what have been plaguing the damned all along, except they're really clear. They're really naked. They're really bare. And finally, he is the new Adam. Not like Jesus, but like the modern man. Look at what Master Adam is. He is a messy jumble of nostalgia, envy, sarcasm, politeness, verbal diarrhea, and the scramble for money. <laughs> Listen, that's you and me. <laughs> that's the modern world in the West. This weird mix of nostalgia, envy, snark, politeness, talking way too much and scrambling for money so that we don't all become destitute at every turn. He's the new Adam. He's the modern man. We have come down toward the bottom of hell and we have found ourselves. I, I am more and more convinced that the problems that beset Master Adam beset the rest of us. Drunk on nostalgia, operating in an economy of envy, in which we envy the goods and the positions of others, using snark to make our points, finding politeness as a veneer to cover our outright hostility in economic regimes that promote envy that cause us to scramble for money and cause us to talk way too much about ourselves in a narcissistic way. Master Adam would be on Instagram, Twitter. No, no, wrong. He would be on TikTok. He would be a TikTok celebrity. No questions asked. And we have got more of him up next. This is a really complicated figure, and I have to tell you, I blew past Cantos 29 and 30 when I taught Dante because I just didn't think it was very interesting. I was like, yeah, 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 counterfeiting. I mean, give me a break. The more I have worked with this stuff, the more I have realized the intentionality of these souls at the bottom of fraud, the way that the tonal shifts happen from funny to desperate. This seems to me the crux of the modern world. And wait till we get to the next bit about Master Adam in the next passage. It's kind of mind-blowing to be at the very foundation of Western civilization. Subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it. Please do those things so that I have the gumption to keep walking and we can keep doing this walk together Gird up your loins. It's about to get wilder. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante. 